to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. This is Justin Bullock. And Gregory Gauze. And we are gathering again at Downtown Uncorked in historic downtown Bryan for a live recording with a few audience members today joining us. And last week, or actually, was it last two week? weeks ago. Two weeks ago, our weeks running together, we were here recording. Um, and we jumped right back into having some wonderful guests, Professor Taylor and Professor Kerr. And we were getting in some of the nitty-gritty policy details of some of the output of the most recent legislat uh, legislature in Texas, talking a little bit about education financing and funding. Um, and so what we didn't get a chance to do is spend some time recapping uh, all the wonderful and fascinating and frightening, and frightening <laughs> stories uh, from the summer's uh, news. So... Uh, Professor Galls and I thought we would take this episode and deliver another hot takes to you, as we did with uh, season one after the midterms, and give you our hot takes, although I don't know, I mean, our first topic's going to be a hot take, but some of these are probably a little cold. Oh, I don't know. Um, well, I, I think they're still pretty hot. Right. I mean, uh, the international stories of the summer. You know, I guess the they're still ongoing. Hong, Hong Kong is ongoing, mm -hmm. and the, the attacks on the Saudi oil facilities are ongoing, and uh, not the attacks, but the issue, and... So yeah, I think I think that we'll have plenty of uh, plenty of hot takes. This will be the international house of hot takes. But before we get there, we're recording, and what maybe two hours ago, we're recording on September twenty fourth. I think uh, earlier today, the news broke um, that the House under uh, Nancy Pelosi was going were going to begin formal proceedings towards um, impeachment. And so while we were going to start today focusing on stories from the summer, the hottest hot take is unfolding in front of us. And so uh, Greg and I actually got to run into one another in the office a couple times today and uh, chat about this as it was unfolding as it was, I guess, leaked earlier today. Earlier right, in the day. right. And, and, you know, folks should, we should understand that this is the beginning of a process, right? This is not the House voting tomorrow or next week on whether to impeach the president. I think what the speaker, who has been reluctant to allow this to occur, finally decided was that the, the Judiciary Committee could begin hearings on writing articles of impeachment that would then be sent to the House floor. So we still have to see what the, what the Judiciary Committee will come up with. But it does appear that the issue that finally broke the dam within the Democratic caucus, where we know there had been a very strong, if minority, faction saying that the president, that the, the, the House should move to impeach the president almost immediately after uh, the Democrats got the majority at the beginning of this year. There had been a number of Democrats holding off, but, a no, but, but at least some proportion of them, uh, given the revelations of the president's discussions with the president of Ukraine, in which the president uh, apparently uh, was pushing the president of Ukraine to investigate Vice former Vice President Biden and Vice President Biden's son's involvement in, in the politics of Ukraine, uh, that broke the dam. Uh, the idea that the president would use the powers of his office, that is to say withholding foreign aid that had been approved by Congress and, and signed into law by the president, to uh, hold back that aid in an effort to get the Ukrainians to do some work 
to try to discredit Vice President Biden eventually pushed enough members of the Democratic caucus over the edge on that. And, and uh, Speaker Pelosi, who, who had been reluctant to move on impeachment, uh, decided that it was time. So the politics of this are real interesting, yeah. right? I mean, aside from the merits, and we can talk about the merits, uh, I think Nancy Pelosi remembers when the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton, right, back in the, back in the 90s, back in the late 90s. And President Clinton's approval ratings only went up during the entire process. And I think that that's what she feared. Uh, so it'll be, the politics of this are interesting. How do you think they'll play out? Well, so I think one interesting piece about the shift, I was following along with some polls before the most recent story, or maybe right about the time the Hunter Biden story broke. And one of the articles I was reading was talking about how uh, the public opinion on the issue was slowly changing in favor of impeachment depending on what poll you looked at, but that the general shift, there was a, there was a general shift towards more people being in favor of impeachment, and some polls showing as much as 50% support for impeachment. So, as you were saying that, what I, what I thought about this case is, I think, if, you know, if the, if the facts are as, as they seem to be, this is, you know, pretty egregious behavior. But what's interesting about it is the politics side, which you mentioned, which is, I mean, <laughs> it's not the first round of egregious behavior, no. right? And so... It's, it's not even the tenth round of egregious behavior. So there's been like um, a long uh, tale, I guess, of, of behavior that in one way or another there were calls for uh, impeachment proceedings because they were so far out of the general accepted behavior of a president. And so what's interesting is that now, with this most recent one, which is, is troubling and egregious, is changing Nancy Pelosi's mind. And I wonder how much of that is like has to do specifically with this case, which is pressuring a, uh, an opponent uh, with a foreign uh, leader, and how much of it is her read of the polls as well, which mm -hmm. is like, hey... She can see the trends in the data as well. She's really been reluctant at times that were kind of pretty serious to, to move forward. And it seemed to me the whole time that she was waiting for her hand to be forced so that she could say, he forced my hand, right? Which is kind of what you're hearing, the early talking point on it is like, we had no choice. At some point, right. this our hands have been pushed by the behavior in some way or another. And, and one does wonder if the president is looking forward to this. Uh, I mean, he can't be looking forward to it in the sense that an impeachment inquiry will be much harder for him to stonewall. Uh, at, you know, one of the one of the uh, issues which some House Democrats said was impeachable even before the Ukraine thing was the reluctance of the administration to turn over documents that were subpoenaed by various House committees. Uh, and, and of course, obstruction of justice was one of the the, the uh, articles of impeachment that Richard Nixon faced. Of course, Nixon was never impeached because he resigned before yeah. it got to the floor. Uh, but it, it, one does wonder if if the president, thinking about the Clinton uh, precedent, thinks that an impeachment 
proceeding will a rally rally his base even more, b bring perhaps lukewarm Republicans, not never Trumpers, they're out of the game, but but the lukewarm Republicans to his side in a partisan battle, and that the Democrats will alienate independent voters. Where I mean the president has had had a horrible time, you know, getting those suburban independents, especially independent women. In the congressional elections in 2018, that's that's why the, the Democrats control the House right now, right? Those suburban districts, some of which he carried in the 2016 election, that that uh, Democrats picked up. Mm -hmm. uh, so it could be a political calculation. Although, of course, we have to be careful reading too much strategy into the president's actions. I mean, he's he goes with his gut. Well, I think one thing you know, whether or not he's looking forward to it or not, I think one thing that he does seem to look forward to would be kind of the, the spotlight on it um, and the kind of dominating he, storyline. He does love the spotlight. <laughs> but I, but I, I mean, this is, a, this is a profound political choice the Democrats were making. I, I personally uh, thought Pelosi was right to hold off on impeachment. Uh, I, I thought that it would, uh, you know, having lived through the Clinton experience myself, I was worried. Uh, because I'm no fan of President Trump, that this would make him appear a sympathetic figure, and and it would make the Democrats appear like uh, uh, they were on they, they that they cared nothing about legislation or anything like that. All they wanted to do was get Donald Trump, and I I, I feared what the consequences of that would be electorally. Uh, I've always thought that the that the the antidote to President Trump's uh, obliterating of so many norms in our politics is for him to be defeated at the polls uh, and defeated soundly in, in 2020. Um, and I just, I, I think impeachment might be, a, uh, might make it harder to get that result. On the other hand, I mean, this is, I mean, to use the power of the office to try to force foreigners to provide damaging information on your political rivals at home is, uh, I doubt it's unprecedented in American politics, but the blatantness with which it was done and the, and the, the raw use of American foreign aid as, as leverage is, 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 I think, unprecedented. Yeah, I was having the same conversation uh, with one of our colleagues earlier today talking about kind of the politics of it. And... Um, you know how it how it plays out to a general audience, to general population, because you know the reality of this is he's not going to be removed from office. No, um, he's not going to he's not he's not going to be convicted in the Senate. And everybody should remember, impeachment is basically an indictment. Yeah. The House votes by a majority to impeach the president, and if it does, then the Senate goes into a trial, literally a trial that the the Chief Justice <laughs> yeah. of the Supreme Court presides over. Yeah. The House sends prosecutors over. Yeah, yeah. The president appoints a defense team, and then the Senate votes as a jury, and you need two-thirds. That would mean 67 of the 100 senators to vote to convict, and that would then remove the president from office, which has never happened in American history. So uh, the idea that so many De uh, Republican senators would defect from the president and vote to convict him is just, I think, a political impossibility. Yeah. So no matter really what the what the what the House does, 
he's not being removed from office. No. And so, given the the near the kind of political narratives, it's unclear from a from a Democratic Party standpoint whether going forward with impeachment proceedings are a net positive for them politically or not. Um, and I I don't actually have. I think it could cut either way. Depending oh, on I think it. I think it could cut other way. Uh, either way, absolutely. Depending upon what kind of new evidence is brought forward in an impeachment hearing, uh, what else goes on in the world. Uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's it's a profound political risk. But the, but the other part of it, which you highlighted on, which is the part that stuck with me, is you know, America is a system of institutions. It's a system of laws. It's a culture. That's what we say. It's all of these things that that were designed in a way because we're not. There's no person above kind of the law, and so we send different signals out as a institute, as a larger institution, about what our values are and how players in our systems are allowed to behave. And one thing I worry about, as so you know, we'll shift to the international stage in a moment. But I was in East Asia. With uh, in Taiwan for the summer, and I was talking with Taiwanese millennials, which isn't something I usually get right. to do. And something I've never gotten to do. <laughs> and their kind of reverence for for freedom and democracy, and for improving one's country, and for basic freedoms of speech and freedom of expression, was was inspiring. And they they built that model. They built that model on our model of of values. And, and norms, and so I, what I what I do worry about is one of the major checks and balance tools that the House does have to say to the world, this is unacceptable behavior by the players in this system. If we don't use that tool when it's appropriate, when there's you know repeated instances of bad behavior, even if short term it's bad politically for a, a, for one party or the other, it seems like we're sending the wrong signals out to the rest of our, our citizenry and to the rest of the world about. But- but How what president can behave? But what's the signal we send if if he's impeached but then acquitted? Does that mean that his behavior is okay? No, but I think it at least suggests some pushback from the institution, from the legislative branch, to you know an aspiring dictator. So I. So the one of the big political science books, uh, somewhat accessible to the general public of the last year, is uh, Levitsky and Ziblatt: How Democracies Die. Mm-hmm. And those are two Harvard, PhD, Harvard political scientists, very uh, respected in, in, in the field of political science. And, and I, I, you know, I'm caricaturing a, you know, a long and, 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 and complex work to say that at least one of their conclusions, though, was, was that it's not just institutions, it's norms that make democracy work. And you can't impeach somebody for violating norms, I think. Because, you know, they're not stated, right? But I think that the president has, has been extremely uh, efficient in stretching and at times just obliterating the norms of, uh, of American politics. You know, some of which are, you know, you don't do private business while you're, while you're president of the United States. Now... Was there ever any law that said that anywhere? No, it's not in the Constitution, right? The Constitution just says you can't accept emoluments from foreign governments, which, frankly, you, I think you, you could have impeached President Trump in the first week he was in office for violating the emoluments clause. 
because he retains his businesses and foreign governments do business at his hotels. But that, let's set that aside. Just the domestic element of maintaining a private business while you are president of the United States violates a norm. But is it an impeachable offense? Well, it's not written down anywhere, right? Uh, having a certain decorum in office, you know, not not using stupid nicknames to ca to caricature your political opponents, you know, treating your political opponents as just that opponents, not enemies. It doesn't appear that the president cares about that norm, uh, and so you can't impeach somebody for violating norms. And yet, I think that in many ways, the normative violations of this presidency, uh, well, the norm that you should respect congressional subpoenas, right? That, that's a norm, right? I mean, the Congress doesn't have an army to send over to the White House or to the Justice Department or to the, or to the State Department to kind of grab those documents and take them back to Congress. The norm was that the President of the United States would respect congressional subpoenas. Well, that, that's a norm that appears to be fraying under this administration. So I worry about the norms, which I don't know if we can recover. And I worry about an impeachment process that will end up in an acquittal that will then be used as a precedent to say, well, what he did was okay. See, he was acquitted. So I, I come back to, to not just for the political, but for the institutional reason that for me, the best way to end this is a, is a thumping defeat at the polls in 2020. Now, maybe that won't happen either. But I, I, I completely take your point that we are on, in politically uncharted waters, you know, facing likely impeachment, Richard Nixon resigned in 1974. I'm old enough that I lived through that, too. Uh, and that was high drama. I bet it was, yeah. That was high drama. We were all in front of the TV. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully now people are listening to podcasts. Right, right. They're listening to podcasts, you know, while they're cooking dinner or doing the dishes. Right, uh, right, right. right. Uh, but I, I, you know, the other, the Clinton, the Clinton impeachment raised the, the popularity of Bill Clinton. Yeah. Who could say, I'm going about the people's business while these guys are doing nothing but trying to engage in the politics of personal destruction. And I bet we will hear the White House talk about the politics of personal destruction yeah, more about, and more. Think about the Clinton case and then let's and then, move yeah, on. Then we'll yeah. It'll be interesting to see, as it does play out, whether the, the types of accusations matter and how it plays out as well, yeah. right? So I think, you know, Clinton's accusations were... Um, that he lied in front of a... In, under oath. Yeah, but it was... the Monica but, Lewinsky affair. But it was popularly a, a lot of part about the Monica Lewinsky affair. Yes. Whereas this case will be, it'll be about a, a number of things, but it'll be about trying to uh, pressure a foreign government right. to uh, attack his political opponent. Right, and right. So that, it'll, that, it'll be interesting be, so those narratives right, play out differently. Right, that'll be, that'll be one... Uh, uh, article. I think there'll be an article on obstruction of justice about about the refusal to submit to congressional subpoenas because I doubt the administration is going to turn over material even to a judiciary committee that's considering articles of impeachment. 
And third, I think there'll be a, uh, an impeachment article on the emoluments clause uh, because his businesses are taking millions of dollars from foreign governments. So while in the land of uncharted territory, uh, while we've been focusing on domestic policy, um, let's make a shift to international affairs. One of us is a department head of an international affairs department. And also one of the world's leading experts on Middle East politics. Oh, he said it with a straight face, too. The audience saw it, right? So let's start there, then. So there were a number of things uh, going on that involved both Iran and Saudi Arabia and uh, the U.S. and rising tensions and... Give me an overview. Sure. So uh, I think the place to start is the attacks on the on the Saudi oil facilities at uh, a week ago Saturday, as I recall the date. Um, this was an attack which uh, I believe came from Iran. I don't know if it physically came from Iran, but I believe that the Iranian government was behind it. Uh, it was, of course, claimed responsibility was claimed by the Yemeni group, the Houthis, that are allied with Iran that the Saudis have been fighting for, for five years in a brutal war in Yemen. But it, it appears to me that the Houthis didn't have the, the, the uh, technical capabilities to launch the kind of strikes that, that uh, hit the Saudi oil facilities. And, and these strikes, and I'll, I'll call them the Iranian strikes from here on, even though I'm open to evidence that maybe they came from somewhere else, they struck the single most important facility in the world oil system. They struck uh, Saudi processing plants at a, a little place called Abqaiq, uh in Saudi Arabia that processes uh, about 7 million barrels of oil a day to get it ready for export. That's, that's nearly 10% of the world's total oil production a day. Uh, there is no other oil facility that produces that much oil in a day. Uh, and it, it, it's the most blatant political assault on the oil infrastructure since Saddam Hussein set fire to the Kuwaiti oil fields in 1991. And the Kuwaiti oil fields only produce about 2 million barrels a day. So I think it was an incredibly serious uh, military escalation. Uh, so why did we get to this point? Well, uh, this is where we bring in the Trump administration. The Trump administration withdrew from uh, the, the deal, the Iran nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. And I'll refer to it as Iran nuclear deal, or the Iran deal as we go forward. That had been negotiated by the Obama administration in 2015 toward the end of the Obama administration in which the United States and Russia, China, France, and Britain, the other four permanent members of the Security Council, plus Germany, plus the EU, right, agreed with Iran that Iran would uh, scale back its nuclear infrastructure which it had developed to the point where people feared that they were moving toward being able to, to create nuclear weapons and that Iran would accept uh, uh, particularly intense international inspections and would uh, ship out some amount of its uh, 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 enriched uranium 
it would reduce the number of centrifuges. I'm not a nuclear physicist, but the, the great, uh, the consensus of opinion was this would, would move Iran at least a year further back from a nuclear breakout capability than they had before. In exchange, international sanctions, economic sanctions on Iran, which had been adopted by the United Nations because of worries about Iran's nuclear developments, uh, were lifted. And the United States stood back and allowed those to be lifted. Now, some unilateral sanctions from the United States were still on, but the Iranians basically could get back on the world market. They could sell their oil without problems. They could deal internationally without problems, uh, economically. And that's why the, the government of Iran was willing to take these steps, mm -hmm. to accept these restrictions for economic reasons. So. President Trump comes in saying the Iran uh, nuclear deal was the worst deal that had ever been negotiated in the history of mankind, except for NAFTA and the Paris climate deal and three or four other things. But he was surrounded at the beginning of his administration by, shall we say, more conventional foreign policy advisors, including General Mattis at the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Defense, the, our, 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 our <laughs> Defense Department. Sorry, inter internationally, we call these things ministries usually, but in America, it's the Department of Defense. And Rex Tillerson at State, yeah. and, and General McMaster, his national security advisor. So the president kind of said, I hate the Iran deal, I hate the Iran deal, but he kept certifying it every six months that Iran was in compliance with it, which it was. But as the adults left the room, uh, the president basically said, that's it. And in... Uh, uh, 2018, he withdrew the United States from uh, the the Iran nuclear deal. I think it was 2018. I forget. I'm forgetting my dates. Maybe it, it was probably within the last 16 months or so. Uh, the Europeans said, "Oh my God, we want the Iranians to stay in the deal, and we're going to try to 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 maintain the economic advantages that Iran got from maintaining the deal." And the Iranians said, "Okay, we'll try." But the United States uh, applied a, pr a, a policy of what the Trump administration called maximum pressure on Iran. Mm -hmm. and, that, that, and, those, and that maximum pressure policy was extremely successful. Foreign uh, business entities were unwilling to do business with Iran, unwilling to buy Iranian oil for fear that by doing so, they would be closed off from the American market and the American financial system completely. And so this really was choking off Iran's ability to export oil. So here's where the Trump administration, I think, made its biggest mistake. Uh, the, the administration assumed in, in an act of what I call analytical malpractice that the Iranians only had two options, that they could either surrender, come to the table, and negotiate a, 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 a different kind of nuclear deal that might also restrict Iranian political activities in the Middle East and the like, or that the regime would collapse and would have revolution and regime change in Iran. What they didn't take into account sufficiently, it seems, is that Iran had plenty of uh, ways to hurt the United States and to hurt U.S. allies in the region. And so for the last, I'd say, four months, we've seen the Iranians escalate their efforts to hit American interests in a way that would draw in international attention and perhaps lead to some new negotiation. So you saw the Iranians uh, damage uh, oil tankers 
just outside the Strait of Hormuz uh, with mines. You saw the Iranians down an American drone that was flying in what the United States says was international waters in the Persian Gulf. Uh, you saw the Iranians uh, impound a British oil tanker. And then finally, as none of these things you know, led to any kind of change in the political situation, you saw this uh, extreme escalation to hitting the Saudi oil facility in Aqqa. You know, if, if where the Saudis were on the scale of 1 to 10, or where the Iranians were on the scale of 1 to 10 to try, of, of pushing the U.S. and trying to provoke something, if they were at a 3 or a 4 before, now they're at an 11. I mean, I think that's how serious the attack on Aqqa was. So it was this sequence of events that led us to this point. Uh, so the question is, what's to be done? Uh, if, if this kind of attack had happened on this centrally important oil facility any time in, in recent decades, I think that you would have seen a huge upheaval in the world oil market. I think you would have seen you know, oil prices doubling. If this had happened even just six years ago when oil prices were over $100 a barrel, taking out seven million, the damage was about five, took out about five million barrels of Saudi production, I think you would have seen oil prices at $200 a barrel. And there, that's a huge world economic crisis, right? Well, the world oil market's different, right? Fracking in the U.S., increased production in other parts of the world, uh, limitations on demand because of trade wars and, and, and economic uncertainty. You know, oil prices went up $10 a barrel, and now they're falling back down. So it's not as serious. And so a lot of Americans say, number one, we don't want to fight any more wars in the Middle East. So we don't want to provoke the Iranians anymore. Number two, the Saudis are horrible and they probably deserve it. And number three, we've got plenty of oil, so who cares? My problem with this is that the whole reason the United States has at least said it's been in the Persian Gulf since World War II and in, a, in an increased way since the 1970s, was to protect the production and flow of oil. And this is the most serious threat to that. And if we basically just say, who cares? I think a lot of international players are going to look at the United States and wonder, well, you know, what good is an American promise down the road? And I think it will embolden the Iranians in the future, maybe not immediately, but in the future, if they have problems with the Saudis or anybody else, to say, you know, if you keep doing this thing we don't like, we're going to hit your oil facilities. And guess what? The Americans won't do a thing. So I worry about the consequences down the road. I think we have to respond strongly, if not directly militarily, certainly indirectly, cyber, you know, covert methods to, to tell the Iranians, to impose some pain on the Iranians, or at least the Iranian uh, military that did this. But at the same time, I think we, we then have to, we have to sit down with the Iranians and say, we got to move away from these sanctions. We understand where, we got to get back to something like the nuclear deal. And, and, and the Trump administration has done exactly the opposite of these things. At least as far as we know, they haven't taken any actions to punish the Iranian military for doing this. And they say they're going to strengthen the sanctions even more. 
which uh, basically means the Iranians are going to come back and hit something else. So that wasn't short, but that was uh, that was my take. <laughs> he is a professor. So it was a hot. Fair. It was a hot. It was a hot take. It wasn't a short take. My takeaway from that is, I thought we were cock and liver. That's because you pay attention to what the president of the United States says. <laughs> <sighs> we were. We were, we, we, we were 10 minutes away, apparently, from military strikes on Iran after the shooting down of the drone in June. And uh, then the president said, no, I don't want to do it. And the New York Times, actually, this past Sunday, you ran a, a very interesting kind of TikTok on how that decision got made, and, and it basically said that all of the president's aides were flabbergasted when the president backed away. Now, maybe that was a good thing, maybe it was a bad thing, but you're a professor of public administration. Uh, there wasn't much process in that decision. <laughs> yeah, just looking at the um, looking at the administration from an administration perspective. An administrative is, perspective. From an administrator's perspective is, uh, is troubling. Um, I try not to do it way too often. <laughs> so, you know, you, I, I'm, I, it's my job to think about these things, and I think about them way too much, way too often. You're, you're a typical American. Ooh. I'm a typical what, American, right? What, what, do you think that there should be some kind of military action against Iran, given the, given the circumstances, or, or is that just running too much of a risk of getting us involved in another Middle East war? Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I sort of, I sort of grew up in a, the anti-war era, um, and so I, I. Dude, I grew up during Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. Um, I guess maybe uh, like anti-violence era, uh, at least in some ways too. Um, yeah, I, I, I stay really torn on it. I mean, I, I would have a hard time authorizing kind of military action. Um, what I would be certainly in favor of is using similar types of like economic warfare in general back or cyber warfare. Well, economic warfare is what got us to this point, though. Well, I meant like uh, disrupting like internal resources in the same way, or thing. Well, I guess what does do they what does iron export? I guess not much. Well, pistachios, <laughs> carpets, and oil and natural gas. So, yeah, I mean, I think I would be for some general responses that are painful, but, yeah, I, I tend to, to not be in favor of strong military responses. But, you know, targeted responses in the way that we can do now with drones, I'm certainly open to discussions about that, yeah. um, which I seem to be significantly targeted in their abilities. Well, the Iranians certainly could target them because they, they were very precise in the way they hit these Saudi oil facilities. Remarkably, after the Saudis had spent hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, on American weapons, some of which were supposed to protect these oil facilities against missile attacks. It turns out that they can perhaps protect against ballistic missiles that go up and come down, but not the, the, the low-flying ones, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the drones, the cruise missiles that fly low to the ground. So I hear a ruminant in your argument of this, of some of the years that I read, uh, last night, actually, we were talking about it, 
And for those of you who don't know, Professor Gall's, uh, it's Survival. Yes, uh, there's, a, there's a journal called Survival. It's put out by the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And I, yes, I, yours truly, have the lead article. Ooh, it's in, the lead article, in, too. Yes, the lead article in the edition that's uh, just coming out, uh, the October-November edition, uh, uh, entitled, uh, Should We Stay or Should We Go? I was going to get to say it. Oh. Uh, the, but I guess the, as the author, you get to say should, it. I should was we, really should we stay or should we go? The United States and the Middle East. And it is an obvious reference to the Clash's iconic early 1980s song, Should I Stay or Should I Go? I won't sing. The, the, clash, the, the, cl the, clash, the clash very famously sang, If we go, there will be trouble. If we stay, there will be double. And so I, I think that, that that kind of captured, I'm not sure the ratio, but leaving the Middle East, there will be trouble. Staying in the Middle East, there will be trouble. It's just a matter of of picking which is uh, least worse. One of the arguments you made that I, uh, you were talking about whether we were actually downsizing or not downsizing, and it depends on what your like rel relative point is, yeah. and certainly it's down from early 2000s, but there's still a significant presence over and above, you know, the 2003, I think. Um, and uh, so it was like, you know, are we actually downsizing? What's our role with all the perceptions uh, of the world leaders and of our own government of withdrawing? We're still as involved there as we were in the early 2000s. And one thing right. you said earlier that made me think about it is like, what is, maybe we'll get some of this grand strategy with some of our friends at our next recording, but what's like, what's the approach, right? Like, what's the, given all of the strategic opportunities in the world and our own domestic ones, what is the what's the real strategic approach to to dealing with that? Right. Well, how I mean, strategy is making choices uh, about how to deploy your limited resources, whether it's in foreign and military policy or uh, you know getting the budget for your municipality. Right. That's that's what strategy is. It's 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 how you deploy your resources and for what ends and and. You know, the, the article that I wrote tried to tried to ask, you know, what would it mean to to uh, draw down in the Middle East? And, and I said, well, what's your reference point? Yeah. If your reference point is when the United States had invaded Iraq in 2003 and we were occupying Iraq and we had well over 100,000 troops in, in Iraq, well, yeah, we've drawn down from the Middle East, right? If your reference point was, say, 2000, we have a heck of a lot more troops in the Middle East now than we did in 2000. Uh, both President Obama and President Trump ran saying they didn't want to get involved in Middle East wars, right? Yeah, yeah. And when President Obama left office, there were almost 60,000 American troops in the Middle East. I think your comment was the, dove, the dovish candidate won out. Right, the the dovish candidate has won every election since 2008. Obama, Obama. And Trump, more dovish than Hillary Clinton, I would argue, on the Middle East. All Obama and Trump both, both said, we got to withdraw. We've got to get, we've got to draw down. Uh, for the Obama administration, we've got to pivot to Asia. For the Trump administration, if you look at their national security documents, they basically say, uh, we have to refocus on great power competition, which basically means Russia and China. That's not the Middle East. Right? And yet, right, President Obama left office with 60,000 American troops in the Middle East, and President Trump, who said he was going to draw down the Middle East, has about 
60,000 American troops in the Middle East right now. Why and increasing them, and increasing them as a result of this attack on the Saudi oil facilities. Why do you think that is? Why is no one able to pull the forces down? I mean, is there just too many other stakeholders and forces moving it in a different direction? Or what's the, what's, why can't, why have U.S. presidents been unable to kind of draw down? I think, I think it's, to some extent, it's because 9-11. Uh, there's this there's this fear that if we leave and another 9/11 happens that president will be directly blamed I think partially it's uh, you know for decades the Middle East has been declared by American policymakers as absolutely strategic and and the Middle East has been exceedingly unstable since the in the 2000s partially because of our own actions, like invading Iraq, like this severe economic pressure on Iran that leads Iran to strike at Saudi oil facilities, and partially because of things we had nothing to do with, like the Arab Spring. Uh, and, and, and I think that the combination of the 9-11 hangover and this severe instability in an area that almost all American policymakers for decades have said is really important, is uh, is the reason. But you have to ask yourself, how important is it? And that's the debate we need to have. How important are these oil resources? Uh, does fracking and, and changes in the world energy market basically mean who cares? I mean, that might be, that might be one of the, uh, of, the, of the lessons of these attacks that most Americans take. You can hit the most important oil facility in the world, and it really doesn't make that much difference. Yeah, now. It's not in their daily lives. Yeah. Right. So I want to move on to one more thing from this summer. Oh, yes. I, uh, want, I, I want to ask you about this. Mm, so, right. so we tend we tend to have short memories in, 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 in short news cycles. But uh, you were in Taiwan teaching for most of the summer. So you got a much closer view of the, of the demonstrations in Hong Kong against the... the, the government, the central government of the People's Republic of China, efforts by citizens of Hong Kong to try to resist efforts by the People's Republic to impose perhaps greater uh, limitations on the freedoms that Hong Kongers had had in the negotiated deal that brought Hong Kong back into the People's Republic of China. So what's your hot take on China and Hong Kong? <laughs> so yeah, it... Um Maybe I'll enter it by way of story, which is, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I had some uh, Taiwanese millennial friends, and one of the individuals that, was, that we spent some time with was a, a Hong Konger millennial who had moved to Taiwan for, uh, for college and had decided to stay and work, and was working for the university. And so it was interesting because she was, she was we were connected to social media, and she was like looking at uh, social media apps that are different than the ones that we have in the U.S. So in general, we do Facebook, Instagram, yeah. Snap, these kind. And in, um, in uh, China and in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, they use some of those. They use some different ones. Um, but in some of those, they are, um, they are censored. The social media platforms are essentially censored as you go. Facebook, right, censored in, in the People's Republic. Yeah, but even so, the one like, I believe it's WeChat, where you, 
you send messages out and communicate is the words that are censored live from uh, from that social media. So like as stories about Hong Kong would come out, they were kind of censored and then pro uh, pro mainland China articles were kind of put out in, in the place of them. And so it was this bizarre thing, right? Because in the, in the, like, as an American, you hear about like censorship. But in general, it's not something that I experience. I mean, we're sitting here allowed to uh, say whatever we want about our about, leaders, about, about the president, about the president, United president and we have free information in general. And um, and so what was what was interesting is a, a couple of them had social media apps that had uh, that they overlapped with their chi- their mainland yeah. Chinese friends because they have mainland Chinese friends. And the, the, the streams of information that were coming down from the social media apps, from the free ones, as opposed to the censored ones, was, was like night and day. Dramatically different. And even within, even within when things were being censored, the, the use of deliberate uh, fake memes was everywhere. So, for example... Uh, one of my friends screenshotted one of the memes that was floating around in one of the social media applications, and it was of Donald Trump on Twitter saying that the uh, mainland Chinese government was gathering forces, they were about to attack, they were encouraging citizens to go to their homes, and they sent me this, and they're like, is this real? Yeah. Um, and so and it looks like a screenshot of Twitter, so I had to Google around for a few minutes, go to Twitter, and look, and it was fake, right? Yeah. It wasn't. It was deliberate attempts to, like, Stoke fear and um, and and anxiety in the people that were doing the protest and the and the end of protests. Go to your house. Go right? to your house exactly. Yeah. And so because of those conversations, I was like paying more attention and where I was staying than I probably would have. So we were actually my wife and I. We were in Hong Kong the weekend before they started, and then they've been going now for sixteen weeks. Um, at different points, they've been more or less organized. They've been more or less peaceful, and then there have been several like strategies from just being in the streets with umbrellas to sit-ins at the airports to uh, disruption of kind of you know, like their city hall right. equivalent. Um, and what's what's been interesting about it is one, there's no leaders really, so they have like uh, uh, Joshua Wong and a few others that have been like parts of it, but they're actually using free. Uh, internet, social media type of uh, applications to organize in Reddit style, right. where they vote up and vote down things. It's so, like this aspects of like um, just how it's playing out on the ground of the protest and what is you know really clearly an information war yeah. that's being had. Like the war isn't even being had on the streets, really. It no, is, it's an information. It's war. an information war, and it's 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 the most. I mean. Which I, you know, we watch it play out on our own social media. It's not censored, but there are there are memes that are up boosted by people with agendas. But to watch these kind of millennials that I that I had the other millennials that I had become friends with be, you know, you know, for example, Taiwan is only has not been a democracy for that long. So they right. watch this play out and they're worried about their relationship with mainland China, and it actually had spillover effects where um, the conflict there, you know, the the Trump administration also sold some arms. To Taiwan is uh, part of this kind of uh, tension that's going on, and China actually uh, restricted uh, Chinese individual visas to go to Taiwan just to visit. And here it's like you know another tool of well, one of just control of information. Um, 
but just showing heightened tensions in there. Anyways, it was it was tragic. It was like tragic to watch it. These people who have the same technological savvy that I do, they're my generation, and they're on like social media fighting an information war. So what was your, what was your sense of the of the of opinion in Taiwan? Was it overwhelmingly supportive of the protesters? Was it uh, cautious because they have their own relations with the PRC? Uh, so my read of it uh, now. My whole world was uh, in a, part, a general part of Taipei, which is a college town area. Yeah, yeah. I was hosted by a university. Uh, I was doing research on some of the artificial intelligence stuff. So my world was a subsection of, of Taipei and of Taiwan. Right. A couple things. You see no Chinese flags in Taiwan. Zero. You see them everywhere in Hong Kong. So the first kind of just observation is that there's, there's no flags of China. Well, but there wouldn't be. I mean, Taiwan is not part of the People's Republic of China. It's the Republic of China. It's its own... It's its own thing, right? It's its own thing. Which isn't always... I don't know if that's always entirely clear to everyone. Okay, um, okay. So, like, some of my conversations from being there, people are like, well, how do the Taiwanese people view themselves? And it's like, well, uh, they sort of... Historically, they're Chinese, but the overwhelming majority of people and everyone that I interacted with, we're, we're our independent state. Right. We're Taiwanese. Right. But, but, the, but the Taiwanese government will not assert that because that could be casus belli with the People's Republic of China, right? There's this great fiction that there's one China, right? There's one China. It includes Taiwan. For decades, the government of the Republic of China in Taiwan said, we're the government of all of China, even though they only control Taiwan. And the United States recognized that. Right? Back in the 70s, the United States changed and recognized the Beijing government. But the way this kind of uh, uncomfortable situation of, 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 of a part of China being governed by a government that wasn't the Beijing government, the way that was finessed diplomatically is everybody said, oh yeah, there's one China. <laughs> and, 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 and the tripwire was going to be when the Taiwanese finally said, no, there's not one China. We are an independent country. And, and overwhelmingly, you feel that, that people in Taiwan want that. We're an independent country, and, but the government holds off because of the diplomatic exactly. consequences. And there's some active polling data the Institution now associated with and others are doing to get the exact kind of pulse of yeah. how people think themselves as Taiwanese, Chinese, or both. But so it had a couple of effects from what I could observe. One, um, I think it heightened everyone's anxiety. Everyone that I was interacting with was was captured by the Hong Kong protests in one way or another, like following along and waiting to see what that might signal about how China would treat them, right? And right. so, if you eventually got to a, a one government, two systems, exactly. like supposedly you had in Hong Kong between Taiwan and China, the Hong Kong example might be uh, an indicator of how China would treat. And the other thing that happened while I was there is they ran military raids, uh, they practice be, raids, they the be Taiwanese government. The Taiwanese government. So they would, there was, uh, it was only once, but this, you had to vacate the city, I mean, not vacate the city, vacate the streets, go into your home, and they landed a couple planes on, uh, like, uh, on, on, the streets? on the streets to practice dealing with the Chinese invasion. Wow. And so I think they think uh, some... Uh, percentage of the elite, some percentage of, of, of folks really think they're under some type of potential threat from, uh, from invasion. 
Wow. As a potential choice. And then they, they look at they look at Hong Kong and and worry about the longer term their relationship with China and how China might decide to to interact if they want to keep their own yeah. two systems. Um, internally, the, so there's um, there's two main parties, the uh, KMT and the DPP, and the KMT was the historical party. Chiang Kai-shek's party. And the uh, DPP... Kuomintang. Yep, and the DPP is the, is the other party, and in general, the way it was, it's kind of been related to me, DPP is in general for weaker ties with China, and KMT is in in favor of uh, stronger ties with China. And so one uh, one thing that people that study election and stuff that I was talking to suggested is that they, they have an election coming up. Uh, mm. I believe it's in January. Um, and it's kind of contentious. Pre- presidential system or parliamentary system? I believe it's, uh, I believe it's presidential. Okay. Well, I don't remember for sure. Okay. Um, and uh, they have kind of a... Uh, populist-style candidate, and um, it's supposed to be kind of close, and so they are, the. They're, it's supposed to be a tight election, but the internal, some of the internal discussion was that because of China's actions in, t- in, uh, Hong, Kong. in Hong Kong, that it might favor the DPP, the group that wanted weaker ties with China, uh, out of kind of watching how they treat Hong yeah. Kong. So we're, com- we're, coming up, we're coming up to the, the endurance of our listeners I think we're way past that. Probably. What, <laughs> what what should the United States do about this, if anything? Sometimes the best thing is to do nothing. Yeah, that's something that uh, most people in Washington wouldn't believe. But sometimes on foreign policy, the best thing is to do nothing. So, my take is that the Chinese system is different than the uh, Taiwanese system. It's different than the Japanese system. It's different than the South Korea system. I was in all three of those places. Mm. The their societies, my take was built around freedom and democracy and capitalism, in some really significant ways, similar to the U.S. Taiwan, Taiwan, and South Korea, and, South Korea. and Japan, and Japan. China seems to be different to me uh, from a democracy standpoint. That's for sure. From a uh, freedom of speech standpoint, and. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think we should uh, find ways to support them. Um, support who? Support Taiwan and support uh, our other allies and uh, continue to support the other allies in the region like South Korea, like Japan. Okay. And be strong allies um, with them as part of kind of containing China. Okay. Um, but I wasn't expecting to have to give an actual position. So <laughs> I'm supposed to be able to say, think about these things that are really hard. Well, they are hard. But in terms of allies in the world that have wealth and power and, and freedom-loving societies, those are some of the most stable, reliable partners. Um, and so I'm glad that the Trump administration is setting them arms and, mm-hmm. and supporting their independence. Uh-huh. Well, we have uh, gone probably a little longer than we should have. Because so. somebody had to talk about Iran and the Middle East at, at great length. <laughs> but that's what I said, trying to share their whole summer experience. Their whole summer experience in, in one podcast. Which seems unfair. But, but I think that we'll be back to the, our, our, our normal format with a, a podcast on grand strategy, U.S. grand strategy, which will pick up some of the issues we're talking about vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis the Middle East, with uh, 
two of our colleagues, a new colleague, uh, General Kimberly Field, who's the executive director of the All Britain Center for Grand Strategy, and Professor John Schusler, who is uh, the, the co-academic director of the center. So that'll be, we'll do that on... We are doing that on October 8th. October 8th. And it will be here at Downtown Bryan in Historic... In Historic Downtown Bryan at Downtown... downtown Bryan. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking too much, I can't even remember the names. Downtown on Court here in Historic Downtown Bryan. So, so uh, tune in then and uh, we'll, we'll be better disciplined and we'll get questions from those who attend. Yes. Which we unfortunately didn't have time for today. Dun, dun, dun. But please join us for our next live recording, October 8th at 6 p.m. We will be at Downtown Uncorked. And thank you for listening.